0: Thank you. On this week's episode of the Northeast Newscast, we are speaking with Brandon Mason, staff attorney at Legal Aid of Western Missouri. Mason breaks down the ins and outs of urban homesteading, a process allowing individuals to live in and rehabilitate problem properties in their communities. He talks about how Legal Aid is able to gain these homes, what the vetting process looks like for interested rehabbers, and what the ultimate goal is in the project.
1: So we work primarily with neighborhoods on the east side of kansas city um, which are historically underserved communities and the primary way that we work with them is there's a lot of vacant or abandoned houses post-financial crisis a lot of those houses were were bought up and sat on by out-of-town investors so corporations or llcs and they don't really care about the communities that the houses sit in they don't care about the properties they saw the houses as a quick investment opportunity you buy them at ten thousand, wait three years and sell them at 15. well that didn't happen and so a lot of these houses sit vacant they become dilapidated and they affect the communities. You know, they lower area property values, they aren't on the tax rolls to pay the county, but in my opinion, more importantly, they affect the livability of the nearby residents. It drags down on a person to live next to an abandoned house. Um, It invites crime, vagrancy, dumping. You know, all the things that affect a person's day-to-day happiness. So what we at Legal Aid do is we work with the neighborhood associations. Um, The board will say, or the community will say, this is a house, it's a problem for us, so I'll go back to the office, I'll do some research on the property, I'll find out who the owner is. We may reach out to the owner and say, hey, we think this is your property, here are the issues with it. It has some open codes at the city level, Um, we need you to take care of this. Otherwise, you know, we might take action up to and including taking you to court and seizing the property. Uh, My background is I uh, went to law school at UMKC Initially, out of law school, I actually worked for the state of Missouri and did um, some abuse and neglect stuff, which is good work, but I always wanted to work. I always wanted to do public interest law, but I really wanted to focus on Kansas City. And I liked working for the state, uh, but I was all over the state. I was in, I think, 16 counties. And it was good work, but there was an opportunity at Legal Aid um, in Michael Duffy's economic un- uh, development unit. And so I, I happily applied and was accepted. And I've been here since March of 2018, so I'm going up about a year and a half.
0: I kind of want to talk about what the Northeast looks like because we have a lot of these properties that you're mentioning that are just dilapidated, mm-hmm. um, have open codes. So tell me about kind of what the landscape looks like in North Kans- or Northeast Kansas City and kind of how you work with that community.
1: The Northeast is incredibly diverse. Each neighborhood has its own identity, and each neighborhood has its own different sort of. I mean, every neighborhood has a really well organized neighborhood association who are interested residents and who are interested in focusing on different issues facing their neighborhood. But the way that involvement looks is different from neighborhood to neighborhood some neighborhoods have had um, historically more vacant properties than others or have been more distressed than others and so legal aids efforts have been more focused on those communities that have more vacant properties
0: i wonder why that is
1: i think it's some of it has to do with just geographic location. So the further east you go in general, the more distressed the climate. And I think that that's a result of one, um, proximity to downtown, which probably historically meant proximity to jobs. It's also a lot of people who historically lived on the, the further east side worked in manufacturing. So you had Armco Steel and Ford. And when those went out, people were, you know, they didn't have housing or they didn't, or they didn't have work. There's also a difference in sort of the housing stock as you go east. Um, So Pendleton Heights, Skerritt Renaissance, and Independence Plaza, although they have a lot of single-family homes, or relatively small single-family homes, you know, two-bedroom, one-bedroom, they also have a lot of larger buildings, too. So the size of the lots and the size of the structures are larger. There are typically fewer residents in those neighborhoods, whereas as you go further east, you get into smaller housing, and it's more narrowly cramped. If you actually go and you drive through Indian Mound, you can see houses that are built closer to one another and usually single story. Mm Uh, And so I think it's also just a a product of numbers. You have more houses, so the likelihood of a vacancy increases. So I think it was access to work and transportation. I also think it's a result of unemployment as a result of the the depletion of manufacturing jobs. And then I also think it's a result of just the kind of housing stock that's available.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the urban home setting, which kind of looks at these properties, look at these problem properties. Um, What would qualify a home for urban home setting?
1: So I, I talked earlier about how legal aid works with neighborhoods mm-hmm. to target uh, abandoned and vacant properties. The primary um, legal way that legal aid helps neighborhoods is through the Abandoned Housing Act. Okay. And that is a state law that allows neighborhoods to take control of properties that are really plaguing their neighborhoods. So if you have an out of town owner who sits on a property, isn't taking care of it, We'll reach out to them. If a the neighbor, if the owner just does not respond, is totally disinterested, then there is a legal remedy in the form of the Abandoned Housing Act. And the Abandoned Housing Act can be used if the the house meets three conditions. The first is vacancy. If the property is vacant, meaning not uh, occupied by the true owner, if it has open code violations, so open codes through the 311 system through the city of Kansas City, and it's delinquent in property taxes owing to the county of Jackson County. Okay. So vacant, open codes, delinquent property taxes. If you have those three elements, the neighborhood can be the plaintiff, and they can go to court, and they will sue the owner. And they will suing the owner to have the court find that the property is legally abandoned. And if mm-hmm. it's abandoned, then the owner no longer owns it.
0: Does that have to be for a certain amount of time? It
1: does. So when you file the case, mm-hmm. the house has to have been vacant for six months prior. So a complete okay. six-month period prior uh, to the time of filing. Okay. Also, legal aid and neighborhoods are not interested in just being bullies. What we're ultimately seeking is just to have people maintain properties. So if we run into an owner who maybe is having trouble, um, maybe they're on fixed income, we'll provide them um, access to services to help them fix up the property. The city and other organizations around the city have minor home repair programs. What we're really looking for are these bad actors who, as I say, are typically out-of-town investors who do not take care of the properties and don't care. They don't respond, and the only option available is going to court. And another part of this is it has to be vacant for six months. Mm -hmm. We're also looking for quite a few open codes. We're not just looking for maybe your gutters need to be repaired. We're looking for Mm -hmm. six, seven, eight open codes, and it's chronic. It's been going on for a long time. And then the last part of it is, is delinquent taxes. Typically, someone can get behind on taxes for one year we're looking for multiple years of delinquent taxes. Okay. So taken together, you've got long-term vacancy, you've got numerous open codes that have been going on for a long time, and multiple years of delinquent taxes. Those three things together are a pretty good indication that that the owner doesn't care. And then if you send the owner letters, they don't respond. All that taken together, they, they don't have any interest in the property. Let's say um, for every 10 properties that a neighborhood identifies and that we send letters out for to reach out to the owners. I would say maybe one of those an owner responds. Hmm. The rest of the time um, we've done enough due diligence that the owners are long gone. Oftentimes what happens is, let's say there's a a California LLC that owns 10 houses. That LLC, um, the owners stopped caring about the LLC and it dissolved. So it's it's not even a, an actual, like, viable company anymore. LLC. So the legal ownership is in limbo. Yeah. So this house is just sitting there. It's owned by an LLC that's not actually an LLC right. anymore. So in those situations, that's we expect not to get a response back. But you'd asked about urban homesteading. Um, So the three elements of the Abandoned Housing Act are, again, vacancy, delinquent taxes, and open codes. If those are met, then the neighborhood can can take the house to court. However, part of the Abandoned Housing Act is not just that the house is abandoned. The court and the statute requires that the house be rehabilitated. So the whole idea of the Abandoned Housing Act is not only are you fixing up a blighted property Mm -hmm. but you're also expanding housing by making that taking a house that's not livable to livable neighborhoods don't have the expertise they don't have the resources to rehab a home so they take on partners in the community and the northeast is special for that legal aid works with communities all over kansas city and oftentimes the rehabber will be someone who has a rehab business the northeast is special a lot of the northeast neighborhoods prefer to work with people who will do the rehab but then live in the property So they'll actually do all the work themselves, and at the end of the case, they'll actually get title to the property and become the owner. And we call those individuals urban homesteaders. So Legal Aid's created a program called the Urban Homesteading Program, If people have the expertise or interest to rehab a home and restore it and need housing, um, then they can apply to legal aid and go through the vetting process, which we can talk about.
0: Absolutely. I do want to talk about that. So do people come to you or what does that look like?
1: Our neighborhood clients will say, you know, this property, this property and this property are, are problematic for us. Go ahead and look into it. And we'll look into it. And after all of our research, if we find out that this house is potentially Abandoned Housing Act eligible, typically we'll put it on a list. And usually through word of mouth, uh, people will hear about the urban homesteading program, and they'll come into our legal aid office and they'll say, hey, I'm interested in urban homesteading. And we will give them the list of houses that we think are Abandoned Housing Act eligible, and they'll go around and they'll look at the houses. And if they're interested in one, they'll reach back out and say, I'm interested in you know this one, this one, and this one. And then we'll go back to the neighborhood and say, we have an interested rehabber in these properties. We still haven't heard back from the owner. It's still abandoned housing act eligible. Would you like to potentially go to court? So people hear about urban homesteading. I think traditionally through word of mouth. Mm -hmm. We've had people who have done it and who have really, I mean, have ended up with houses who uh, will tell their friends, their family, and then it kind of spreads out from there.
0: The vetting process. So they walk in, they say, hey, I'm interested in this property. What does that look like on your end? What does the application process look like? What do they have to have in order to qualify?
1: Yeah. I I can only give an overview of this. The expert on urban homesteading is Brenda Romo, who works in my office. So if you're interested in urban homesteading, you do have to go through, as you call it, a vetting process. Part of that is, I think it's a three or four page application that asks questions like your name, where you live, but then it asks questions particular to how you'll be able to complete the rehab. Do you have a background in plumbing, electrical? Do you have a background in roofing? You don't have to have a background in construction or rehab, it just helps. It also will ask questions about how much money you have in savings, how much money you have in the bank, what's your income? The purpose of those questions is really to determine whether or not you have the capacity to do the rehab. I've seen rehabbers who, urban homesteaders, who have rehab businesses. So they're experts in rehabbing properties. I've also seen people who have no background in rehab but say, you know, my brother does roofing and my cousin does plumbing and I'm gonna get my family's help. It's a spectrum. So I don't wanna discourage anyone if they think, oh, I don't have a background in rehab, that they can't be an urban homesteader. That's not true. Um, It's really a case-by-case analysis. Uh, But we have applications at um, our West Side office and Brenda Romo can walk them through that.
0: What would disqualify someone from being
1: accepted? I don't think we would use the term disqualify. I think Brenda Brenda is very good about having um, one-on-one discussions with everyone Mm -hmm. who's interested. If she were to receive an application where the person said they didn't have any background in any kind of rehabbing, they'd never worked in construction, they didn't, have any plan or knowledge of how to have someone help them and they really didn't have adequate resources to complete the project when they took it on she would probably have a conversation with them and say you know i think we need to be realistic it's not clear how you're going to be able to complete the rehab and also for your protection if we go to court and this property's in court you have to complete the rehab which takes some money so you you know you might want to come back in six months or a year when you've saved a little bit more
0: okay do they have to have the rehab completed in a certain amount of time?
1: Um, no, but we usually expect it to be around a year. Okay. So when you take the property to court, you'll go through all the, the typical preliminary legal stuff, and then if the owner still hasn't come forward, the court will actually award to the neighborhood and the or what they call temporary possession. Okay. We're the temporary legal owners of the property, meaning we can enter, exit, and secure the property. And that's when rehab begins. Okay. And from that date, from the date of temporary possession, we ask the rehabber to have rehab done in about a year. Um, it can go on longer, but we we ask for it to be done around that time.
0: Right, as long as you know they're like actively working on it yeah. and doing stuff with it. Okay. Yeah. Um, how many properties have been rehabbed in the Northeast through Urban Home Setting?
1: Oh gosh, I would guess twenty-five to thirty that's not actually an accurate number and I don't want to misrepresent it, but that's sort of my estimation. Estimation. Okay. Yeah.
0: What have been some of the challenges that you've faced regarding either getting the property or finding people or having the properties actually rehabbed? Like what are some of the hang-ups that you've seen or some of the challenges that you've had?
1: You know, we really haven't had many problems. The reason why is we do a lot of work up front to do all of our efforts to make sure that we give the owner every opportunity to come forward and fix the property. Once we're at the point of going to court and rehabbing the house, we never have owners come forward. We have in very rare circumstances had owners come forward after we filed and say, you know, this is my house, I want it back. In those circumstances, that's been challenging. The good news is when we work with an urban homesteader, the urban homesteader actually pays the costs of filing the case and doing the rehab, but the statute actually protects rehabbers and neighborhood associations. If you file the case and you go to court and you start the rehab, and the owner comes forward, we have the urban homesteaders provide um, keep really detailed notes of what they're spending and how much time they're putting into the rehab. And if the owner comes forward, they can't just say, oh, it's my property, thanks for fixing it up. They actually have to make whole the rehabber. They have to yeah. not only pay the rehabber back for all the work they did and the time they spent, but they also have to show how they have a plan and resources to fix the property themselves. I would say challenges have been, in, in general, every property has a pretty long history, especially in the Northeast. You know, these are these are older neighborhoods, and yeah. so they've gone through generations of ownership. And title can get kind of messy. You know, maybe three, four, five, six banks have lent on this property, and sometimes banks forget to Record that a mortgage had been paid off. So there's a lot of work in communicating with all the different people with ownership on the property. But in general, urban homesteading has been very successful.
0: I know there's a lot of uh, vacant properties in the Northeast. So what's the line between, I guess, maybe a home being on like the dangerous buildings list, like listed for demolition? Like mm-hmm. at what point does it get too far gone or do you still work with those properties?
1: We will typically not work with properties on the dangerous building list. I actually don't know internally what the criteria is for for Kansas City's dangerous buildings unit to determine a property as dangerous or not. I expect, just sort of based on the history of the properties I've looked at that were and weren't, I think it has to do with structural issues. Mm -hmm. Typically properties that have have caught fire, Mm -hmm. and so like support beams uh, have significant fire damage, those are usually on the dangerous buildings list. Um, We, as I say, don't typically work with dangerous buildings. One, because it might be a waste of everyone's time. And two, because there's other properties that we can focus on that we know don't have those structural issues. Mm -hmm. And if it's marked for, if it's dangerous building, as you say, it's typically marked for demolition. So we have to untangle it from that situation. We have to work with dangerous buildings to have them release it as a dangerous building. It's, it's just a lot of extra work. It doesn't sure. mean that we won't. Uh, it just means that it's extra work.
0: Yeah. I was just wondering, because I know that we, Northeast recently did the uh, scrap metal ordinance. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have passed some laws regarding taking the copper wire from these abandoned homes. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I mean, there's mm-hmm. laws that have been passed regarding that. So I know that's a huge problem in the Northeast. So I just didn't know how that kind of played into it.
1: Well, the one thing I will say about that ordinance, I think the biggest victory from that ordinance was recycling centers are forbidden from purchasing burnt copper mm-hmm. and one of the leading contributors to house fires in all over the city but especially in the northeast was people coming in breaking into the house tearing out the copper wiring and then it had that um, that that film around it that what they would do is they would start a fire in the house to burn the copper to burn off what was wrapped around the copper to expose the bare copper and that would lead to house fires now recycling centers can't buy burnt copper and that's a pretty huge victory. I, I have no idea what the data is for how successful it's been in curbing house fires, but it's a start. Mm-hmm.
0: Tell me about how do property taxes come into your role specifically? Like, where do they kind of fit in your role? And then, has this recent uh, 2019 property tax issue touched you guys? What does that look like for you?
1: Um, so, property taxes do affect what I'm doing. I, I would say. We've talked a lot about the Abandoned Housing Act and urban homesteading, but I'm generally interested in in housing, mm-hmm. um, quality housing and affordable housing. Kansas City um, has challenges to both right now. We had Healthy Homes passed last year, which is great, which will deal with with um, with with healthy and adequate housing, but. Um, we're still dealing with an availability of affordable housing so the Abandoned Housing Act and urban homesteading expand available housing You know, what was once a vacant house is now an occupied house and that's wonderful property taxes touch what I do because as property values and assessments increase so do property taxes and people that are most affected by increases in property taxes are the poor and people on fixed incomes. That's an issue because it affects housing stability. You know, communities are horribly affected by people's ability to, to pay for their homes and stay in their homes. In 2019, um, the assessor's office under the county executive performed their, their biannual assessment. And we have a new assessor, Gail Beatty, who said she's just doing her job. She says that historically, um, property values have been undervalued in Kansas City, and she's doing her job, which is to find true market value. All over the county, we've seen increases, but especially in the urban core on the east side of Troost, we've seen incredible increases. We've seen the most 200-plus percent increases in that urban core area, uh, whereas other parts of the city have seen uh, around 14.9 percent or less. So the reason it affects me is, one, it, it just it bothers me that people who have lived in neighborhoods, lived in homes and contributed to those communities for 40, 50, 60 years are suddenly faced with displacement. And two, it bothers me because it only feeds into the cycle of a lack of available affordable housing. If people who currently have housing can't live in it, and we already have a situation where people are on wait lists for affordable housing, we're only perpetuating this problem. So my role with uh, property taxes has sort of taken a couple different forms. One, it's been informational sessions, letting people know about their appeal rights. Um, to letting people know about different meetings of either the County Legislature or the Board of Equalization. And then really just looking at what potential remedies are there on a larger scale. People can individually appeal, but what are, what are the larger systemic ways we can fix this? Is it a statutory change? Is there something within the county charter? So we're really trying to come at it from all angles. I'm basically on the backs of a lot of other people. There's incredible community or- organizing going on right now around this. And people are upset and frustrated, and rightfully so.
0: So in the instance of urban homesteading, you know, one of the qualifications was that they were delinquent in property taxes. Who pays those?
1: Yeah. So the urban homesteader does. Oh. So when you file a case, there's the filing cost. There's all the things that go into actually starting a case before we can get to rehab. So the urban homesteader pays all the legal fees. They pay the rehab, and then they pay the delinquent taxes. To file a case and all the legal stuff is around $400, whatever the delinquent taxes are. Usually it's going to be around $1,000 to $3,000. So separate from the rehab, if you look at it like they're buying the house, their cost to buy the house is essentially the delinquent taxes plus filing fee. So anywhere from $1,400 to $3,400, which is a pretty good deal.
0: With this recent property tax assessment, have you seen people say, no, I don't want to get into these properties because of the values? Or like with that assessment going on, have you seen any people not want to take this project on?
1: No, not yet. So right now it's just an assessment. It's not yet a tax. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the year, this assessment will translate into a tax, into a property tax. Those are not yet, that hasn't taken effect yet, so we haven't seen the effects from increases in taxes. Maybe it would, but we haven't yet.
0: Okay. Is there any piece that we're missing about urban home setting that I didn't think to ask?
1: No, I think, um, I think if anyone who is interested in urban home setting should definitely reach out to Legal Aid of Western Missouri. Mm-hmm. So we have an office at 920 Southwest Boulevard. It's a community office, so you can simply walk in. You don't need an appointment. We have applications available and people available to answer any questions that you have.
0: Well, I think this is very good for the Northeast. I think that It really just kind of takes these properties and kind of gives life back to them, honestly, which touches, like you said, a whole host of other issues with quality of life for people, um, blight, trash, dumping, like issues that the Northeast has faced for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, And that invites crime, which perpetuates a whole different portion of challenges in the Northeast. So thank you for your work. Thank you for everything that you do for the community. And we appreciate it.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that was Brandon Mason, staff attorney at Legal Aid of Western Missouri. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Northeast Newscast. I'm Elizabeth Orozco.